Hi, this is Robert Duncan McNeil, also known as Tom Paris from Star Trek Voyager. You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 7 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm John. And Max is not back. He's stranded right now on the planet of downtown Chicago. Um, his communicator has just lost power, and he says that he's unable to beam back to uh, to uh, the commentary track star studios. Um, so unfortunately, we're without Max once again. But this could, I, I have a feeling, be a regular thing, seeing as how he's planning an out-of-town wedding during the holidays uh, having done that once myself, I know that that's not fun. So, what can you do? Heck, I I watched somebody plan my wedding from a <laughs> distance, and uh, wow, that was rough too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. What do you think of this? I don't know. It's fine. <laughs> anyway, so today is uh, part seven, the final part on our series on Jerry Taylor. Or is it part six? I guess it's part six. Um, where we're going to be looking at uh, her work on everything in television. Uh, as a producer, as a writing producer, we're just going to go through her career and, and recap what she's done and what we've been talking about and see if we can draw some conclusions. Yeah. So she had been writing for television in various forms as uh, just a staff writer or a freelancer. And then in 1982, she became a producer on the final season of Quincy M.E., which was a show about a medical examiner who solves crimes. And she seemed to be sort of like the showrunner for that season or or close to it. Uh, John, what did you think of Quincy M.E.? and her work on the show. I, I think that probably the um, best one to look at for that is that uh, uh, the last episode of that season that uh, we agreed was sort of a, a uh, cloaked pilot for yes. uh, an attempted at a sp- spinoff show. The cutting edge. Really s- yes. And you could see uh, a lot of the, I, I guess, looking back through everything, some some of her hallmarks were there. I mean, you know, there was strong character development. There was a main character who was very driven, um, and you had a strong female role. I mean, you know, by today's standards, the the woman who worked in the robotics lab was not um, the most empowered, but uh, it was an indicator of things to come. I, I mm-hmm. think you could say. And uh, so, you know, her her episodes were socially conscious, which I think also showed up later in her career. Yeah, I agree. You could tell that uh, even with inside this rather formulaic show, she was trying to do something and uh, put her own stamp on it. And I think she successfully did. Um, I, you know, I had never seen Quincy before, and I did enjoy what I saw. Uh, it's the type of thing which I, I would like to go back and revisit at some point. And um, I think that her episodes are, are very solid, you know, and kind of like you're saying, an indicator of things to come. Uh, especially in terms of, you know, why she's a good fit with Star Trek. So, Absolutely. Okay, her next show, after Quincy got uh, canceled, was 
Blue Thunder, which started and ended in 1984. <laughs> she was a producer on that show, uh, along with uh, the show's creator, David Messinger, who she would work with for uh, a good portion of her career and who she would eventually marry. And she was a producer for the entire length of the, the show, which was all of 11 episodes, which uh, the show was about a police helicopter that would go around and stop crimes. And with the assistance of the zany duo that were ex-football players in their locator truck. Yes, Rolling Thunder. Oh, with yeah. Dick, Dick Butkus, among, amongst other things. It was crazy. Uh, about a week or so ago, I was in Fuddruckers, and they had the NFL Network on, and they were doing, like, the the Dick Butkus story. And at one point, <laughs> they show a clip from Blue Thunder. I'm like, hey, hey, look at that. It's Blue Thunder back on the air. All right. <laughs> the glory so, days of television. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So, John, you weren't here for our Blue Thunder episode, but uh, what are your thoughts on the show? Hands down, one of the worst, you know, every so often you stumble across shows where you say, boy, why didn't they give that a second chance? (laughs) They gave this more than enough chance. This was an awful show. They took a movie that had uh, social commentary about how much power are you going to give the police and instead turned it into this, I mean, I'm not even going to... uh, I'm not even going to bash the formula by calling this formulaic. This was just a nightmare. I mean, I would have loved to see exactly like how how much tums people were eating behind the scenes with this because everything smacked of we need a good cop show and we need okay, there's a helicopter? Yeah, we'll have we'll open up the series with a plane fight with an old like it was just that first episode, hands down, the fact that they got a second episode is stunning because everybody do yourself a favor. Go out on YouTube and see that first episode and question yourself, how? How did this get past this episode? I'm sure since it was coming off of the movie, you know, the movie had just come out and I'm guessing was a, a moderate success at least, that probably what they did was say, you know, hey, let's let's do this show because it's a sure it's a sure thing it's a hit you know and right. even after seeing that first episode they were probably like well but you guys saw the movie and the movie was awesome so it's going to be like the movie you know you know we'll, we'll find our footing we'll figure yeah. it out we'll we'll get there we'll get there and they did we, have even... the uh the non-comedic stylings of uh Dana Carvey yeah which, uh, his pre SNL days that was great and, you know, the movie was, was written by Dan O'Bannon, and he actually came in and wrote, like, an episode or two of the series, which is kind of terrifying. And um, Everybody's got to get a paycheck once in a while. I guess so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was probably like, contractual. <laughs> it's not like he was making a lot of money off of Dark Star, I'm guessing, but, you <laughs> <Fair> know. <point. laughs> um so, yeah, I mean, that's, I'm guessing, how it got made. But then after they, you know, made, like, 11 episodes, probably, you know, in one bulk thing before it even aired, they were like, okay, after that first episode aired, they were probably like, no, no more. This is it. This is the end. <laughs> yes. They, 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 this, this was a television mercy killing when they took this off the air. Yeah, I don't think that I hated this as passionately as you. Um, I definitely thought it was bad, but... I could enjoy its cheesiness. Not at all. 
Okay. Not at all. And I, I'm, uh, people have called me the butters of uh, viewers before, you know, the, the South Park character, because I'm always the one that's kind of like, yeah, it's okay. So for me to have a reaction like this is, it's pretty strong. Yeah. All right. Well, since Blue Thunder uh, crashed and burned in <laughs> 1984, uh, there was a bit of a gap in uh, Taylor's producing writing career or writing producing career up until 1987 when she uh, joined the staff of Magnum P.I. for its final season. This was another show which was produced produced and created by by Glenn Larson who had created Quincy so who's kind of like Taylor coming home again I guess in a sense and Magnum PI it's about a, a Vietnam veteran in Hawaii who has his own private detective agency and he goes around solving crimes and getting into adventures and stuff uh starring Tom Selleck I'm mm-hmm. sure most people have seen it in, in some form or another so what are your thoughts on Magnum P.I.? Well, the show as a whole is 80s classic. Like, you know, we go from one end of the spectrum with Blue Thunder to Magnum P.I., which is just, I you I don't think you can reference 80s television without talking about Magnum. And, uh, you know, for her work on the show in that last season, she wrote one of the, you know, a constant fan favorite, you know, that was a serious episode that dealt with his past and, everything that had happened to him. And um, the eighth season of Magnum was a gift to the fans because they they weren't happy with where they left it at the end of the seventh season. And this is an example of bringing a show back and really delivering something that was special. I mean, I, I think the eighth season of Magnum is one of those ones that uh, bucks the trend. Sometimes when you bring a show back, it doesn't, live up to its own hype and it doesn't deliver. But I thought that the eighth season of Magnum did deliver it. It brought something that stands the test of time. And for a show to be in that last season when they know it's over and they still deliver good quality episodes, that's, I think that's a testament. Yeah. You know, I I was not very familiar with Magnum aside from, in the way that everyone is familiar with Magnum and sort of its place in in uh, pop culture, mm-hmm. but watching these episodes, it it, it was a, a very solid show. You know, I, I kind of always figured it might have been one of those things where it's like, oh, everyone watched it, but we don't know why. You know, it was yeah. just kind of like one of those. In in a lot of ways, that I think you know, probably stuff like CSI is going to be remembered um, in the future. You know, but. Yeah. Uh, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. It it had, you know, a few problems, but it was so 80s that mm-hmm. I, I really sort of appreciated it on that level. And And the other thing about it is, unlike Blue Thunder, which really felt like Taylor in her writing was just sort of trying to do the best episode of... Blue Thunder, in mm-hmm. Magnum, it felt like she was trying to do her own thing, you know, yes. and uh, that's that's really cool, you know. M- maybe not so much as she was in Quincy, because I do think that you know her style may conflict with Magnum's a bit, 
But she did the best that she could with that, and she found a way to sort of make it work within that style and, you know, made what uh, apparently is one of the quintessential episodes of the show. So I was I was really impressed by by her work on that thing. And apparently so were the producers of In the Heat of the Night, because after Magnum P.I. ended, Taylor went to work the next season on In the Heat of the Night, which was just entering season two. Uh, Messinger was, as far as I can tell, the showrunner on that season, and Taylor worked with her with him a bunch during that season. And they only stayed on for that, that one season, but in that time... Uh, the show was very critically acclaimed, and Carol O'Connor, who was the star of the show, uh, actually won the Emmy during that season. Mm-hmm. And she wrote, or co-wrote, the pilot episode. Well, I guess not really the pilot, but... The second season opener. The, the two-hour movie. Right, exactly. The yeah. second season opener. And then she also wrote um, another episode later on in the show. And we watched the second season opener. Now, what do you think about In the Heat of the Night in general? Uh, I mean, you know, the show is was a socially conscious show, so there's that thread coming back uh, for Jerry Taylor, and it, you know, it tried to deal with uh, some pretty serious issues and, um, you know, get people to look at those sorts of things. In terms of Don't Look Back, which was that second season opener, it's not anything that I think holds up in the way that somebody is going to uh, point to it as, you know, one of the great successes of like, it's not like that episode of Magnum. This isn't one of those TV episodes where you're going to say, okay, you know what? You can skip the rest of the show, but you've got to see this one because it is formulaic. Again, people use that as a knock, but it does follow a pattern. This was your two hour season premiere. This got a lot of attention. This was bringing the show, you know, to the next level as it were and had a it had a fairly complex plot fairly uh fairly gruesome actually if you think about it for the day um and some strong language and everything but it, you know it's good it, it holds up enough that you can watch it and you can say here's here's something interesting you know and and that says um you know that again you know the social consciousness behind it and also advancing the characters in such a way that they have a conflict that isn't defined strictly by the racial tensions of the show. That's defined by, you know, who they are and where they're going to fit in the hierarchy and those sorts of things. Yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement with you on this. Uh, I do admire what they were trying to do and what they did accomplish, but at the same time, it's not a standout it seems like it's pretty much on par with any other uh, halfway decent um, police show of the era. And while, you know, the the sort of angle that, that this show was approaching the genre from was the, you know, racial component and sort of the uh, the, the social interactions uh, between the, the different police officers of different backgrounds and stuff like that, it it still didn't rise above, you know, mm-hmm. and you can tell that this show wanted to really rise above and, and par- partially because of its history and the fact that, you know, it's based on, uh, you know, an Oscar winning movie, which did rise above. But right. when you're kind of 
you know, following in those footsteps, you're almost setting yourself up for disappointment in a sense. There's no right. way that you can do what that movie did, especially not on a weekly basis. The the this you know climate of of uh, the world is not the same as it was you know twenty years ago when that that show or when that movie was made. So it's right. impossible to replicate it. And you know they'd probably say like, well, we weren't trying to replicate it. We were trying to do something slightly different with it. And what it ends up being is just kind of a watered down version of that. And while it isn't bad by any stretch of the imagination, it also doesn't really seem noteworthy to me. And um, while I do definitely see uh, Taylor's influence on the series, I think it's one of her lesser works on the whole, though not bad. It's no blue thunder. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's exactly where I was going with it. It It's like she hit rock bottom well before this, so everything was up from there. Now, she left after that one season, and the next season she went on to work on Jake and the Fat Man, which is a show which we did not cover because the season which she worked on, which was season three, I believe, uh, was is not available anywhere. Um, so that's unfortunate. Okay, this the series was rather successful. It had 103 episodes over five seasons and Taylor wrote three of them during that third season Uh, but I personally haven't seen any of them now I know that you have seen Jake and the Fat Man in the past Uh, can you kind of tell us what that show is it's about a fat guy played by uh, William Conrad who um, has uh, Jake who works with him as like a private detective type guy and they uh go about seeking justice for people so it's you know it it was an eminently forgettable show um and it was you know i think people need to remember that you know conrad had a career before the show and this is in the days where when a film actor had had a career and then went on television it wasn't simply a different phase and it wasn't finding new success it was, I need to work. And that was pretty much what this show is, is this was Conrad needed a job and this gave it to him and there's nothing particularly memorable about the show. I have, you know, I did watch it when it was on, but not typically on purpose. It was definitely one of those shows that you would happen across and it would be kind of like, eh, okay, I don't feel like going outside. Sure, why not? Let's do this. And yet, in some ways, it does seem like it fits in with Taylor's career in terms of uh, the procedural sort of uh, mm. crime show. You know, sure. I mean, we've got Quincy, even Blue Thunder, which is sort of that, but outside of the box. Magnum P.I., In the Heat of the Night, Jake and the Fat Man. All of these shows are about crime fighters in some way or another, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that is a, that is a thread through all of them. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess in in that way it it kind of makes sense. But on the whole Jake and the Fat Man doesn't doesn't get your seal of approval. No, it does not get my <laughs> seal of approval. It it most assuredly does not. All right. Um yeah, it was on for 5 seasons. It was nominated for a couple Emmys. So I guess that's good, right? Nah. <laughs> for nah. outstanding I... cinematography, 
outstanding achievement in music composition and then outstanding achievement in cinematography. And apparently the cinematography was excellent. It was nominated for the ASC award and everything like that. So but everything really, except the acting and the story got nominations. So, you know, that should yeah. let you know. You can put something together that's technically brilliant but isn't isn't going to sustain. Yeah, if you want pretty pictures and nice music, check out Jake and the Fat Man. There you All go. Right. <laughs> but whatever it was, I guess it was good enough, or her body of work was good enough, that the following season she um, got a job as a producer on season four of Star Trek The Next Generation. And this Yay. is a gig which she had all the way through the end of the run. Um, in season six, she was kind of handed the writing staff while Michael Piller went off to make uh, Deep Space Nine, and she pretty much ran seasons six and seven of that show. Uh, season seven was nominated for Best uh, Drama at the Emmys, which is uh, the only time uh, a Next Generation era show was. Um, they had weird categories back in the 60s, and the original series was nominated a few times in mm -hmm. the equivalent. But, um, yeah... What do, you, what do you think about her work on, on Star Trek The Next Generation? Ask anybody that's a Star Trek fan. That show went out on top. And they all regard it as having gone out on top because those last couple of seasons were terrific. They really were. I know that any show, you can pick and choose a couple, especially back in the days, back before, you know, when seasons weren't just eight episodes. There would be, you know, a couple episodes here and there where, you know, you can kind of leave them. But... That, I mean, that show ended on such a strong note. Like, in a sense, Jerry Taylor um, gave them such a a huge push into the films that I, I think it was inevitable that that fans were going to feel something of a letdown when that transition happened. I mean, I remember at the time people questioning, why are they taking this off the air? This is terrific television. Why are you canceling this? And it was strictly because Paramount didn't think people would watch a TV show and pay to go see a movie. And it, it, it all came down to that. Yeah, they were like, well, you know, these are money makers from a, a theatrical perspective and we can launch a new show and, mm -hmm. you know, just just do that. Now, with, with The Next Generation, she wrote 13 episodes uh, during that time. Um, some pretty good ones like Descent part one and unification mm -hmm. was probably her big one and, and time zero uh, and a few others here and there. Uh, but I think more than that, you know, she really was a producer in, in the uh, proper sense of the word, you know, mm -hmm. the way that television credits work a lot of the times with writers is, you know, if you're on the writing staff long enough, you know, you get promotions. So every year you start off as like a staff writer then you become a story editor, then you become a producer and a supervising producer and a co-exec and an executive, you know, all that stuff. And what that means is what? Well, I, you know, you write, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and the, the, the responsibilities of a staff writer compared to a co-executive producer are not really that different, aside from, obviously, if you've been there a while, you're probably going to get more responsibilities and whatnot. But yeah. the showrunner really is sort of like the executive producer in the in the in the true sense of the word and she was that for season six and seven of next generation and that's when the show like you're saying really flourished and went out on top 
season six, I said this, you know, in our, in our first episode on Taylor, it's the best season of Next Generation, if you ask me. I mean, that's some solid, solid stuff. And season seven is amazing as well. I mean, that's the one that got nominated for, for uh, the Emmy. So, you know, what, whatever else she's done, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter to me because she did the glory years of Next Generation. And uh, I, I feel like she's more responsible than anyone else for that show's um, quality. I wonder, as, we're, as you're saying that, I, I wonder, is it possible, I mean, having gone through Blue Thunder and having come in at the, you know, at the end of Magnum, at the end of Quincy, is that experience the invaluable stuff that informed her decision making and why Star Trek went out on top? Is she learned enough from the mistakes and what could have kept these shows going? And took all of that experience and was able to leverage that in such a positive fashion that she avoided, you know, the, any of the pitfalls that were going. Now, granted, it's a different situation. It's not like she stepped in. You know, it was very clear that Quincy was going out. It was very clear that Magnum was going out. But at the same time, it really feels like that when she was working on Star Trek, she was setting something up that really could have kept going for a while longer. And I, I think she, I think her earlier career informed her decisions. I think that's true. You know, it, it does make sense. And also, I mean, even just being there for the ending of shows, you know, being there mm-hmm. to see, and in, in the same type of scenario where it's like, you know, uh, we know we're ending. You know, and, and, and it is a very popular show and doing something which is going to be, you know, satisfying to everyone involved. You know, she she knew how to do it because she had been there for that that mm-hmm. particular moment in the thing. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense what you're saying. So she whether or not that was intentional, I mean, it seems like she was the right person for, for the job. Not yeah. to mention the fact that in all of these shows, which were rather, you know, procedural in nature, like we keep on saying and everything like that, and basically um, detective shows or cop shows, she's the one who, in a lot of her episodes, brought that, that social commentary to them, mm-hmm. which is what Star Trek thrives on. So yeah. it, it seems like a perfect fit for that that show. Yeah. And the other thing that we see, I think, is... In Star Trek Voyager, she is bringing her other, you know, sort of like trademarks to mm-hmm. that series. We were getting the social commentary and everything like that. But then we're also, you know, now when she's the one who's making the decisions and everything, she's bringing in, you know, the strong female characters, uh, the the uh, somewhat older crew members in, in some instances, you know, like with mm-hmm. Tuvok and stuff like that. and And the things that we see her doing throughout her career when she's finally in a position to create her own show she's bringing all of those things which she was trying to sneak into the other shows mm-hmm. and 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 putting them front and center in in this one so yeah, yeah her her last her last uh, producing uh, effort was Star Trek Voyager the show which she created and uh it started up right after next generation ended 
Uh, she co-created it with Michael Piller and uh, Rick Berman. And, uh, yeah, I mean, everyone knows what, what Star Trek Voyager is. She stayed on it for four seasons before uh, kind of gradually handing over the reins to Bran and Braga and uh, then retired. And that's the last thing that she's done uh, in terms of television. So what do you think about Star Trek Voyager? Voyager is not my favorite Star Trek show. I've never made any uh, secret of that. But going back and rewatching uh, some Voyager, you know, to, to look back, and especially that, I mean, the, it did. It started off very strong, in my opinion. Uh, the Caretaker was a good opener for the series, especially when you look at the when you look at the way Deep Space Nine opened, and you look at the way Next Gen opened. Voyager has a really strong start. Um, it never really hooked me uh, when it was, you know, first run. But I almost wonder now, going back and rewatching some of the stuff, if it was if I was suffering from Star Trek fatigue, the way that they felt everybody was. Yeah, I mean, Voyager came on. If it had come on before Deep Space Nine, would it have had more success? Would it have been able to, you know, ride uh, momentum? Who knows? But uh, Voyager came on at an unfortunate time. Uh, in the sense that people were starting to get a little bit tired of their Star Trek. No, that's definitely true. I mean, that's what happened with me. You know, I mean, I remember watching season two and being like, why am I doing this? How many more (laughs) shows that are exactly like this one do I have to watch before I just say enough of it? And, you know, at that point in time, I was 15 years old, 16 years old in high school. I was discovering a whole world of movies, you know, which I had never seen before. And, you know, it was the mid-90s and Tarantino was around. And it's yeah. like, why would I watch, why would I watch Tattoo when I could be watching Pulp Fiction? <laughs> right. Or Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Or, or you know, any of those things. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the 90s did have, the, the movies were finally, because um, that really was sort of like a fresh renaissance to draw people away from their television sets. Mm-hmm. It, it was a real competition, sure. Yeah. And, you know, looking back at it now, and, and I oftentimes think about uh, Tristan and Charlene on, on To the Journey. And how, to the Journey! To the Journey! <laughs> and, and how much they love that show. And you kind of like, like they talk about Voyager the way that I talk about Next Generation, you know? And I mm-hmm. get the impression that, you know, well, I mean, they're, they're ever so slightly younger than me. And it probably hit them at just the right time, just like Next Gen hit me at just the right time. And and the way that I obsessed over Next Gen on a daily basis is the way that they obsessed over Voyager. And if I was a, a few years younger, I could see myself being a big Voyager fan. If Voyager was the show that was on when I, you know, got into Star Trek, if that was the yeah. thing, I'd probably be... I'd probably be on to the journey, talking about how awesome it is. To the you know? journey. To the journey. <laughs> but uh, as it stands, you know, I, I think that uh, the first, I, th- I think the first season is decent, and then the, the next couple seasons really sort of drag. And season four is when it starts to pick up, although I think that has a lot more to do with Brandon Braga than it does to Jerry Ta- Taylor. Um, but that being said, like, 
seasons one and two of Voyager are way better than seasons one and two of Next Generation, you know? Yep. Yeah, the seasons one and two of Next Gen are... They're almost unwatchable. bad moments. Yeah, honestly, I think that... I, I mean, Next Generation, Voyager got hurt from Star Trek fatigue. I think Next yeah. Gen, people were just so starved to have Star Trek back on. They were like, well, we're just going to ride this out. They'll yeah. figure it out. They'll figure it out. We'll take what we can get, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I just, because uh, they just had all those um, Blu-ray sets for Next Gen on sale at um, Amazon. So I mm-hmm. picked up the ones that I'm missing, and now I've got, well, I don't have season seven yet, but I've got the rest of them. And I'm like, okay, now's the time to start rewatching Next Gen. I've been waiting for this, you know, waiting to have them all so I could just watch them all the way through. And I'm like, all right, I can't wait. And I'm like, oh, God. These first 50 episodes are going to be really, really tough, you know? Very, very difficult. That's always the thing. You know, with, with like, original series, that's not the case because it's, like, seasons one and two are the best, and then it gets to a point where you're just like, I don't want to, no, no. I, yeah. I, let me just stop this. <laughs> this is a bad idea. Let me stop this right here. But yeah. with Next Gen, it's like, you got to get through those first two seasons. Whereas Voyager, I don't think I would have that feeling. I've only done one complete rewatch or, or fresh watch of, of Voyager, and that was when the DVDs came out. And, you know, since all of it was new, you know, it, it wasn't really hard. But, like, thinking about it now, like, I would have a lot less trouble going back and revisiting seasons one and two of Voyager than I would seasons one and two of Next Gen. Yeah, absolutely in agreement. Yeah. But... But yeah, I mean, I I do think that that uh, Jerry Taylor's uh, concepts and and plans for Voyager were a lot stronger than the finished product. And you know, we talked in that first episode about some of the uh, factors which may have contributed to that, like the network and everything. Yep. And I would like to see what it would have been if she could have done just what she wanted to do. And uh, you know, we never will. But yeah, uh, you, and, and one thing I do go back to just while we're talking about it is I, I know, uh, you know, Mulgrew was not the first choice for Janeway, mm-hmm. but I think that as long as we're talking about Voyager, I really have to wonder if that just didn't work out for the absolute best because um, Mulgrew really going back and rewatching uh, Taylor's body of work there are hints of the way that Janeway panned out in some of those earlier strong female characters. You can definitely see, I mean, all the way back to Quincy's girlfriend. Yeah. You can definitely see it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that Bujold, Jean Vivienne Bujold, who was the original choice, you know, especially when you look at that, that footage, which they have on the DVD and stuff, it's just like, ooh. Yeah. This is not a good fit. I mean, she's, I, I know she's at least been nominated for an Oscar. I don't remember whether or not she won, but, you know, no no knock on her as an actress, but that was m- miscasting on their part, and Mulgrew feels like she was sort of born to play that role. Yes. And she does feel very much, you know, I know that, that you know, like Charlene was saying, she's kind of, uh, uh, the character is kind of Jerry Taylor's baby, and... I can definitely see that, you know, especially mm-hmm. now watching all these other things going all the way back to, to Quincy. You can see the proto-Mulgrews, not yeah. the proto-Mulgrews, the, the proto-Janeways. 
Yeah, proto proto Janeway is all throughout the line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So okay, so looking at all these shows, uh, what conclusions can you draw, or what are your final thoughts on Jerry Taylor's career as a writing producer? It's a good arc, you know. It's a good career. She, you know, you can see, like we said, you can see the social justice stuff that was um, important to her, the commentary. Uh, you can see her being one of those people quietly. Like history is a, is a lot of times made quietly by people that don't get recognition for making it and I think that Jerry Taylor if you look at the body of work she's one of those people that was a force for change if you will bring in the strong female characters in and it it's so you know it's a strong final act for her was Janeway and that's that's a good arc to watch and see I mean even the females that she wrote on Magnum which is you know about a for lack of a better term, he was something of a Lothario. She mm-hmm. still brought strong female characters into her episodes that she wrote. And so that's a good arc to watch. And I think that you can actually see her figuring it out and putting it together as all of these shows march through time. Yeah, for sure. I agree. Um, it, it really is kind of interesting. You know, when when we went into this whole thing, I was really kind of scared that what we would end up with was a bunch of shows which she came into late and which were sort of plug and play where mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to tell what it was that she brought to them and in the end it would just be like a connection of, or a, I'm sorry in the end it would just be like a collection of um random 80s television right but what we found I think was that she really did have sort of an agenda as a screenwriter. She wasn't just doing these things for a paycheck. She was doing them because she had something to say. Mm -hmm. And that comes through in all of this stuff, even though she wasn't necessarily the showrunner or anything like that. In in her individual episodes, she brought herself to her work. And what we end up seeing in Next Generation and then especially Voyager is uh, those individual episodes and ideas that were in those episodes um, sort of expanded upon into her own full series where instead of her trying to have to cram ideas into someone else's stuff, she's got a whole staff of people who are supporting those ideas and Mm -hmm. trying to figure out ways to bring those ideas to the forefront. Mm-hmm. And and that's pretty cool. And I think that might also be one of the reasons why her work on Next Gen and Voyager is, in in my mind, the best in her career. Agreed. All right. Before we we go, we just wanted to to uh, take another look at the um, ever changing drama of <laughs> the yeah. Star Trek Thirteen director. Uh, musical chairs saga, um, whatever it is. Just today, as we're recording this, which is on Monday, December 15th, 2014, um, Deadline revealed a supposed shortlist of directors which Paramount wants for Star Trek 13. It's a very interesting collection. 
Apparently, the guy at the top is Rupert Wyatt, who directed, most notably, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, who we discussed last week. I think I said, you know, if I was a studio head, I'd go after Rupert Wyatt. He seems like the ideal choice. Uh, The other people on the list were um, Daniel Espinoza, who was the director of Safe House, Um, Justin Lin, who was the director of a lot of the Fast and Furious movies, as well as uh, a couple of other things here and there. Um, He's going to be also a director on uh, True Detective Season 2. And then there was Morton Tildum, who is the director of The Imitation Game, the new Benedict Cumberbatch movie about uh, Alan Turing, which uh, is almost certainly going to get nominated for Best Picture this year. And the final name on the list was Duncan Jones, the director of Moon and Source Code and the upcoming World of Warcraft movie. Now, pretty much as soon as this news dropped, Duncan Jones was like, that's really nice. I am not doing that. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so he's out, uh, and that leaves four. Rupert yeah. Wyatt, Daniel Espinoza, uh, Justin Lin, and Morton Tildum. So what do you think about this? Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with these dudes. Um, well, let's let's start with, with Rupert Wyatt, since he's you know the number one guy on the list. He directed... Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and he's got a new movie coming out uh, called The Gambler, which is a remake of uh, the movie with James Caan. This one stars Mark Wahlberg. It was written by uh, William Monaghan, and um, I swear to God, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> and I kind of, uh, I, I had this idea in my head when I passed this up, but like a couple of weeks ago, they did a screening of this movie in Chicago. It comes out on Christmas Day, but they did a screening in Chicago, and Rupert Wyatt was there. And they're like, we've got passes, we've got passes. And and I'm like, oh, I could get passes. I'm off that night. But you know what? I'm supposed to be recording commentary, Trek Stars. That's so I'm going to do the responsible thing. That's dedication right there. <laughs> I, I tip my hat to you. That is true dedication right there. Because and if somebody I'm offers like, <laughs> me a free movie pass, I'm calling in sick. I'm just going to let you know that right now. Uh, that's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> you know, if it were some other movies, believe me, that would happen. But I was like, oh, I should have done that. And then I could talk about it on the next episode of Commentary Trek Stars. But yeah, no. So we're going to have to wait and see on that one. But what, you saw Rise of the Planet of the Apes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was... Um, it was really good. I remember really like. I remember going into it very skeptical, and the movie wins you over. And so obviously he is able to deliver a movie that has a fair amount of action, uh, special effects. He's obviously very comfortable with them and getting people to deliver good performances. Uh, you know, in an effects-driven movie. You know, honestly, of the names remaining, that's the one that I would want to see. Uh, because it, it would indicate to me that this could very easily be the most serious of the reboot Star Trek movies, that mm-hmm. they're actually committing to the idea that this is going to be heavier. This isn't going to be so action-driven, but it's going to have uh, a meatier plot to it. That's the indication I would take from it. Yeah, and his style is is a bit more subdued and everything like that. He does the drama well. And then I think like uh, we were saying last week, you know, Rise of the Planet of the Apes shows that you can do a 
big mainstream Planet of the Apes movie, which, you know, is based on a, a science fiction franchise from the 60s and make it a, a appeal to the mainstream audience and yet still win over fans of that original. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. Like, I remember, you know, when that movie came out and I was seeing, like, these people walk up to, to buy tickets for Planet of the Apes and, you know, they were, like, high schoolers and, you know, junior high kids and stuff like that. And I'm like, these people have... I mean, what kind of a world are we living in <laughs> where, like, a teenager is saying, like, yeah, one for the new eight movie, you know? Right. I mean, that just blew my freaking mind, you know? Because I'm sure they've never seen the originals, and yet they're like, yeah, yeah, this is good stuff, you know? Yeah, and it can wind up being that gateway drug, too. You know, and it, Star Trek, I mean, let's be honest. They want these movies to have people go back and look through the old catalogs again. Yeah. And wouldn't it be great if we had a little, you know, gateway drug Star Trek movie to get more people to go back and, and look back over, uh, you know, everything that's come before. That'd be yeah. great. So, so now, I mean, another one of the, the guys there, which is sort of uh, an interesting choice in, in sort of like the, the blockbuster sense, is Justin Lin. Now, Justin Lin is best known for his work directing Fast and Furious three through six. He is kind of sort of the auteur of the Fast and Furious franchise. A lot of people think that uh, Fast and Furious, to- I'm sorry, the fast. you need to be very specific with the Fast and the Furious movies. <laughs> A lot of people think that the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift is the best of the franchise. I think that's freaking insane. I think that movie's <laughs> terrible. I think that Fast and Furious, which is the fourth movie, is also terrible. But Fast Five and Furious Six, I think, are both very, very good. Fast Five in particular is pretty awesome. And if you're looking for someone to sort of capture the spectacle that J.J. is able to capture with these new movies, then Justin Lin is your guy. But he also sort of has that um, sort of uh, critical appeal in that he's um, able to do kind of smaller character pieces. He kind of burst onto the scene with this movie called... uh, uh, Better Luck Tomorrow, which is sort of like a uh, high school um, drama. And then he's also now directing uh, season two of True Detective. He's working on that. And he he's also directed a number of episodes of Community. So pretty pretty good track record all the way around. He can do both the spectacle and, and the drama. Um, are you, are you familiar with his work? Have you seen any of his movies? I haven't seen a single Fast and Furious. I I have not been fast. I have not been furious. <laughs> not once. Uh, okay. And I have had many people tell me that I should give them a try. But, uh, man, their marketing is is not <laughs> not playing me very well. Look, I'm going to tell you this. This is going to be outside of the box, and pretty much everyone in the world will disagree with me on this. But you got to trust me on this. If you're only going to watch one of these movies, the one to watch is Too Fast, Too Furious. Okay? Which I'm guessing is the second one. It is the second one. Okay. It is the number two. Yeah, with Too Fast, Too Furious. I'm writing this down right now. Okay, you need need to watch that one. That's the one where, unlike the first one where it's like, 
let's go race some cars. In the second one, they're like, let's get these guys who are racing cars to go undercover to stop a drug lord in Miami. It is ridiculous and hilarious and awesome and actually really well made. John Singleton directed that one. That guy knows how to make movies. And he talks about how he was really inspired by like anime and like Speed Racer and stuff like that. It's a good movie. Right, and so, in, in, in the cheesiest way possible, okay? So if you're, you, since you're familiar with the series, yeah, and therefore Lynn working on this series, yes, you know, I, I'm sitting here, I'm saying, oh, well, Rupert, Rupert Wyatt would tell me that they're, you know, going to be bringing something heavy and serious. Would Lynn be an indication to you that they're going to stay focused on spectacle as opposed to the serious social driving type of stuff that Star Trek some of us old timers want want it to be definitely i think if if they bring in justin lynn i think what we're going to see is you know some amazing action sequences and probably not much in the way of plot i'm hoping vin diesel then would be the villain because that would just be awesome it could be why not you know i mean hey i'd be (laughs) i'd be down with that you know i mean yeah yeah. i mean he could be across uh all the different sci-fi franchises then he would just be the go-to why not? You know, he could be Riddick. Why not? You bring in Riddick and oh, there you go, a Riddick Star Trek. Cro- now, see, I'm in the theater for that one. I'm front row, back row. I'm seeing it five times. Yeah, that absolutely. Sounds, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so sort of the uh, the one of the the other weird choices where it's just like you see this happen a lot. I think where someone is like, oh, that guy just made a movie. Um, we should get him because he just made a movie, and I remember him now because he just made a movie. <laughs> that choice would be Morton Tildum. Now, that's a very strange thing. I have not heard of this guy up until, like, a week ago because um, I had never seen any of his movies. He's made um, a lot of, like, Norse movies and a few small things which I've never seen, and now he's the the director of The Imitation Game, Starring Benedict Cumberbatch about Alan Turing, who's what he's like the guy who created the first computer, essentially, right? Yeah, one break... of the most, honestly one of the most brilliant minds in the last like 150 years, hands yeah. down, easy. I, I haven't seen it. I talked to one person who saw it, and he's like, "That thing is amazing," and I'm I'm desperate to see it now, especially, and it's gonna get nominated for best picture. He's probably gonna get nominated for best director, but is that a I can definitely see, you know, from from a content standpoint, you know, where that lines up. Yeah. Is he able to do the action? I don't know. You know, it seems like going sort of f- way off to the uh, Rupert Wyatt end, but in a big way, you know? Right. Um, I don't know. I take it you haven't seen The Imitation Game either? No, I haven't. Okay. That, no, I haven't. Uh, not because I don't want to but just you know i get very very rare opportunities to get out to the theater yeah uh, and it's only been out for like a week so you know yeah. um well I, you know if it comes down to imitation gamer inherent vice i'm going for vice but uh yeah of course <laughs> you know you know i yeah tildum really does seem like a name that they just threw out there because he's got oscar buzz and you know maybe that would bring 
you know, maybe they're looking for that. Some of their thinking has to be molded by uh, the idea that, oh gosh, Abrams, the guy that we were pinning our hopes on, is now going to show us up with Star Wars. We have to get somebody in here that's going to, yeah, I mean, somebody nominated for an Oscar or being given buzz for an Oscar would be perfect because yeah. you can say, oh, well, fine. Abrams went off to direct some more action-oriented stuff. We're bringing you the masterpiece theater of Star Trek that you've always wanted because, look, we have an Oscar-nominated director over here. Yeah. That would be, you know, that that gives Paramount, you know, a little bit of hand, I, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, 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 it's a strange choice, but, I mean, I don't know. We have to see about that one. Now, th- this last guy who they have is kind of out of nowhere. You know, I don't, I don't get why his name would even be in the running, and that's Daniel Espinoza. He is the director of Safe House, uh, which was a movie starring Denzel Washington and. Uh, See, I thought it was Mark Wahlberg, but it was no, Ryan, Ryan Reynolds. Reynolds. Yeah. I've seen this movie, and they all blend together so much that I didn't even. Re- <laughs> <laughs> um, have you seen this thing? No, nah. it's not nah. good. It is yeah, there, the. There was nothing about it that made me want to go see it. Yeah, it is the. It is exactly like you would think it would be, and there's nothing about it which is at all noteworthy in any way whatsoever. Now, I know that he does have a couple movies on the way. He's got one movie called Child 44, which is about, um, like, uh, Stalin-era Soviet Union, and he's got Tom Hardy in that and Gary Oldman. That's supposed to be um, very promising. And then he's got another movie, which he's working on now, apparently, um, called Boston Strong, which is about the the bombing at the, the Boston Marathon mm-hmm. from a couple of years back. And that is really kind of like his next big project, which means he'd probably have to leave that in order to do Star Trek. So right. what, are, what are the odds of that happening, really? And why would they want this guy? Unless they've seen Child 44 and they're like, it's the most amazing thing ever. I really right. don't understand why his name is even in the running here. It's He strange. could be the most cost-effective option. He could be, you know? And, I mean, to be fair, he has directed a lot of monies. He's... Um, Swedish, um, and he's directed a lot of movies, um, which I've never seen, um, but maybe they're all masterpieces. I don't know. You know, who knows? So out of these people, who would be your pick? Wyatt. Wyatt. Yeah. Yeah. I, out of, out of those names, I, I think that that's a, I think Wyatt is probably their top choice and I would actually go out on a limb and say that they, they want um, Tildum as their number two. So if would, Wyatt turns them down for some reason, they'll go after Tildum. That would make sense. Like, I, I could see them going after Justin Lin, given the opportunity, just because he's such a big name and has such a sort of like reliability factor for, for big-scale blockbusters. But, I mean, Wyatt makes sense. It, yeah. He's the best fit. And also, you know, I, I just mentioned this on Twitter, but I was going back and looking at Wyatt's uh, collaborators because I was like, oh, no, Claudio Miranda, he's going to be gone now. He's not going to be shooting it anymore, probably, right? Because they're going to, you know, want to bring in their own cinematographers and stuff. And I'm like, well, Wyatt worked with Andrew, is it Lesney or Lenny? I don't know how to pronounce it. The guy who shot Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and he yeah. also shot Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And I am legend, and it's like, well, we could get him as the cinematographer. I guess that's not too bad. 
And then his editors for Rise of the Planet of the Apes are Mark Goldblatt and Conrad Buff, who are the guys who edited T- Terminator 2. That's not too terrible. That's that's a pretty good credit to have to your name. Yeah. And and now his new movie, The Gambler, the music is by John Bryan, who, of course, did the music yeah. for uh, Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love. Yep. And... If he brought John Bryan in to do the score for Star Trek, I'd be like, I don't care what you do. I don't care if you make the biggest piece of crap imaginable. It doesn't <laughs> matter to me at all as long as I can buy that album off of iTunes and put it on repeat for the next 10 years because that's going to be the best score ever. It will be a fantastic score. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that that's worth it to me right there. And as close as we'll get to Paul Thomas Anderson, probably, <laughs> for a Star Trek movie. Yes, yes, which I'll, I'll take. All right, so commentary, Trek stars has spoken. Rupert Wyatt, he's our choice. You better be listening, Paramount. Yeah, yeah. well, pitchforks and torches if you don't. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been fun talking about Jerry Taylor's career and the possible new directors of Star Trek 13, but that's not all we're talking about this week. So uh, here's a taste of what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. And and so I was biased against it. it even when I started buying the, the two-disc collector's edition DVDs, I avoided buying any of the even-numbered movies. Odd-numbered Odd movies. movies. Earl Grey. Like uh, like they stated in the end of the movie, you know, they thought he'd outlive all of them. And I'm like, yeah, that's what should have happened. We should have seen Data, like, in the, you know, 26th century, like Data 5.0, whatever we call him. To the journey! You don't know if she's going to stab him or smooch him. She's going to smooch him, of course, after dessert. <laughs> after dessert. We all know what dessert means. Warp 5. Along with technology and along with trying to study the origins of a lot of different things that we've come to know in in the original series and beyond, it's hard to try and deconstruct it without insulting what has come in all of the things that we know of being Vulcan Mind Melt. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And my thought was in the next scene, Crusher should have the body of the dead Klingon sitting on the back of her toilet holding a candle. You know, <laughs> what she would only get to do after Lieutenant Yara's gotten to hold the dead Klingon up to her ear to see if she can hear the ocean. Commentary, Trek stars. Everything you would imagine would be in an opening title sequence for this show is in there. I think the shot that really does it for me, the shot that really pulls everything together is when he dunks the basketball. <laughs> Melodic treks. So we do know an awful lot of people get associated with Vic Fontaine. He name drops to the nth degree about all the famous people that he hangs around with. One of whom is Frank Sinatra. Axenar, the official podcast. When there's a possibility for something to be misunderstood or um, not clearly explained it can potentially open up a big hole for a show because people can end up going down a path that was actually not what somebody wanted to be done. The 602 Club. What are those Bond movies that you go back to time and time again because they just do it better? Uh, First of all, Matthew, nobody does it better. That's true. Uh, It makes Uh, me feel sad for the rest. (laughs) (laughs) 
And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So be sure to check out these shows. Uh, they're available right here on the website or on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, pretty much anywhere else you can find podcasts. Uh, we've got new shows for you pretty much every day. And, uh, yeah, be sure to, to to download them and listen to them and love them and give us feedback and all that good stuff. Yeah. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary Trek stars to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers and even some of the most famous Star Trek books like Prime Directive, Federation, and Spock's World, Audible has something for everyone. What do you have for us today, John? Well, uh, there is Star Trek Voyager Mosaic uh, by Jerry Taylor and narrated by Kate Mulgrew. And in this uh, novel... Uh, Captain Catherine Janeway, commander of the starship Voyager, is fighting a desperate battle on two fronts. While she duels the Kazon warship in the gaseous mists of a murky nebula, an away team led by Lieutenant Tuvok is trapped on the surface of a wilderness planet. Forced to choose between the lives of the away team and the safety of her ship, Captain Janeway reviews the most important moments of her life and the pivotal choices that made her the woman she is today. From her childhood to Starfleet Academy, from her first love to her first command, she must once again face the challenges and conflicts that have brought her to the point where she must now risk everything to put one more piece in the mosaic that is Catherine Janeway. Yeah, and apparently um, uh, they even reference stuff that happens in this book on the show. So it's canon, if you ask yeah. me. If, if, ever, if ever a novel was. Yep. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with the 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is, including this book. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've yet to read and the la- that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for supporting Commentary, Trek Stars, and Trek FM. And also, um, if you want to donate to the network, you can go to patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. It's kind of like Kickstarter, but on a monthly basis. And uh, there's different um, donation levels with different rewards to choose from. Uh, Things like uh, bonus content and wallpapers and stuff all the way up through... um, uh, you know, uh, sitting in on, on planning sessions and, and sitting in on episodes that as we record them or producer credit. So uh, be sure to check that out and help us out. It'd be greatly appreciated. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. All right. Well, uh, that's pretty much it for today. Um, John, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, you can find me uh, trolling the world on Twitter at Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. And uh, aside from this wonderful show, you can also hear me on Words with Nerds, uh, dropping every Thursday through iTunes and blah, 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 all those other services. Yeah, and you can find me on uh, Trek FM right here doing Standard Orbit with Drew each week. 
And you can also find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com, where I do Commentary Track Stars Off Topic with Max and Brandon. And you can find us as a show on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or you can email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com. And you can also find me personally on Twitter at Mumbles3K, where I spend most of my time these days speculating on who the director of Star Trek 13 will be because I'm fascinated by this stuff. It's like it's like <laughs> if you play fantasy football, you know, yep. this is like fantasy, um, you know, director casting stuff for me. And Don't I give away too much. I've got a great app idea. Yeah. Yes. Fantasy director. Yeah. Come there on. Let's go. do this. Fa- fantasy studio head, right? Yeah. We'll workshop it. Okay. All right. We'll have, we'll have to yeah. figure that out. <laughs> All right. Well, that's about it for this week. And uh, we will be back next week to start a new series on LeVar Burton. 